Section 17 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 8, edited by Francis Rott Wheeler. Foundations of Mathematics, Part 3. Ordinal Numbers. We are now prepared to define ordinal numbers, or types of order, which must not be confounded with the terms of the familiar series first, second, third, and so on. Two series, U and V, are said to be like when there is between them a biuniform relation such that for every pair of terms A sub 1, B sub 1 of U, and their correspondence A sub 2, B sub 2 of V, if A sub 1 precedes B sub 1, A sub 2 precedes B sub 2, or the likeness may be affirmed of the two relations by which the series U and V are generated. It is noteworthy that likeness is to series or their generating relations analogous to equivalence in the case of classes. Like equivalence, the relation of likeness is reflexive, symmetric, and transitive. The ordinal number, or order type, of a series U is the class of series each like to U. If a series be a finite class, its ordinal number is uniquely determined by its cardinal number. The two numbers obey the same laws of operation and are, owing to the failure of man to distinguish between them, denoted by the same symbol. Thus the cardinal three and the ordinal three are both denoted by three, yet they are radically different things, for the cardinal three contains, for example, the class composed of the individuals A, B, C, but not the series A, B, C as such while the ordinal three contains that series and the distinct series BAC, among others. In the fields of infinities, the difference between the concept of ordinal number and that of cardinal not only may but must be observed, for the laws of operation are then no longer the same for the two kinds of numbers. For cardinals, whether finite or not, the commutative law of addition holds without exception, not so, however, for ordinals. For example, denote by alpha the infinite ordinal number of the endless series a sub 1, a sub 2, a sub 3, and by 3 the ordinal number of the series b sub 1, b sub 2, b sub 3. Then the ordinal number of the series b sub 1, b sub 2, b sub 3, a sub 1, a sub 2, a sub 3, is naturally 3 plus alpha. That of the series a sub 1, a sub 2, a sub 3, b sub 1, b sub 2, b sub 3, is alpha plus 3. But the last two series are not similar, so that 3 plus alpha is not the same number as alpha plus 3. Hence, not all ordinals obey the commutative law of addition. And so for other laws of operations. The calculus of infinite cardinals and the distinct calculus of infinite ordinals are among the most beautiful and inspiring creations of mathematics. Philosophers and theologians have yet to learn to appreciate the significance of these doctrines, both of which are due mainly to the subtle creative genius of Georg Cantor, though others have made important contributions to their development and refinement. Rational numbers. Rational numbers, or fractions, are defined to be certain relations between the integers or cardinal numbers. This may be clear as follows. Let the small letters a, b, c, d, e denote integers. Suppose that a, b equals c, d, b equals e. It is obvious that to b there corresponds a relation, conveniently denoted by capital B, which consists in the fact that a, b equals c, d, b equals e. Similarly, to any other integer, as small m, there corresponds a relation capital M, such that p capital M q means that p small m equals q. Now suppose that a, b equals c, d. Then we may write AB equals P, CD equals P, whence A capital B P and D capital C P. From the last follows P capital C D, while from this and A capital B P follows A capital B capital C D. The compound relation capital B capital C, uniquely determined by the integers small b and small c, is named fraction and denoted by the familiar symbol divided by. All such relations together constitute the class of fractions or so-called rational numbers. Rational numbers having the cardinal 1 for denominator are usually denoted by the symbol for the numerator and are thus made to appear as cardinals. Cardinals, however, they are not, as is evident by comparing definitions. A cardinal is a class, a rational is a relation. Upon this relational basis, the entire theory of rationals is easily built up. Positive and negative. It is to be noted and kept in mind that cardinal numbers and rational numbers are neither positive nor negative. Each of them is signless. 
Numbers having sign, plus or minus, are defined as follows. If two integers are consecutive, there is a relation between them, the same for every pair of consecutives by virtue of which one of them proceeds and the other follows. Denote this relation by r. Then, a and b being integers, the proposition a r b means that a plus 1 equals b. The relation r is asymmetric but intransitive. If a r b and b r c, then a r r c or a r squared c, and so on. The powers of r are also asymmetric relations. The converse of r to the p is not r to the p, that is, the quantity not r to the p. S that a r to the p s equals s not r to the p a, the left-hand member signifying simply that a plus p equals s, and the right-hand member that s minus p equals a. The relations r to the p and not r to the p are defined to be respectively the positive and negative integers, commonly denoted by plus p and minus p. Next, let small a, small b, small c denote rational numbers or fractions. Suppose that the sum of small a and small b is small c. Then corresponding to small b, there is a relation capital B, such that small a capital B small c means that small a plus small b equals small c. That small m capital B small n means small m plus small b equals small n, and so on. This relation capital B is defined to be a positive fraction and is denoted by plus small b. The converse relation capital B is named negative fraction, is denoted by minus small b, and is such that small m capital B small n means that small n minus small b equals small m. The reader should not fail to discriminate the integer a and the positive integer plus a. The former is a class, the latter a relation. Similarly, the fraction a and the positive fraction plus a are distinct. Both are relations, but the relations are by no means the same. Real numbers. Consider the ensemble e sub 1 of all the rational numbers less than the rational number 1, and the ensemble e sub 2 of all rationals whose squares are less than the rational 2. Each of the ensembles possesses the properties, it does not contain all the rational numbers, it contains every rational number that is less than any rational whatever, any variable rational, contained by it, that is, if it contains the rational x, it contains every rational less than x, it contains no number greater than all the numbers in it. Any class of rational numbers that has the three properties stated is named segment of rationals. Given any segment, S, the class composed of all other rationals may be conveniently denominated co-segment of S, complement of S. A segment of rational numbers is called a real number, which is thus a class. The real number e sub 1 is named 1, and denoted by 1. The real number e sub 2 is named square root of 2, and denoted by the usual symbol. Segments fall into two classes, according as their cosegments contain or do not contain a minimum number, one that is smaller than every other number in the cosegment. The segments, or reals, of the latter kind are called irrationals. Those of the former kind are commonly called rational numbers, though they are obviously very different from rationals, merely corresponding to them. Thus the symbol 2, for example, denotes the cardinal 2, the positive integer 2, the rational 2, and the real number 2, all different ideas manageable by the same laws of operation. The theory of real numbers, as thus defined, turns out to be identical with that arising from the usual definition of reals, and has the advantage of not having to assume a limit where there is none, as, for example, in case of the foregoing segment E sub 2. The notion of limit, not yet employed, will be defined in the following section. The concept of continuum. This most important concept is definable in terms of order and without use of metric or magnitudinal considerations. The process is due to that primate among subtile thinkers, Georg Cantor. Denote by eta the order type represented in the ensemble of rational numbers taken in order of magnitude. Any series of this type has the following three properties. 1. It is denumerable. 2. It has neither a first nor a last term. 3. It is compact, that is, between any two of its terms there is another term of it. By calling it denumerable, it is meant that a biuniform relation subsists between its terms and the terms of the series 1, 2, 3, 4. That it is denumerable may be shown easily. Arrange the rationals in a series by beginning with 1 over 1, following this with those having 3 for sum of numerator and denominator, these with the fractions having 4 for sum of terms, and so on, omitting any fraction that is equal to a predecessor in the series. 
The series is 1 over 1, 1 over 2, 2 over 1, 1 over 2, 3 over 1, 1 over 4, 2 over 3, 3 over 2, 4 over 1, the fractions having same number for sum of terms being arranged according to increasing magnitude. It is now plain that we can correlate the first term of the series with 1, the second with 2, the third with 3, and so on, so that each term gets paired with an integer and conversely. Hence, the series of rationals or any other series of type eta is denumerable. A series of the type of the series 1, 2, 3 is named progression. A progression, all of whose terms are terms of a series eta, is called a fundamental progression of eta, and ascending progression of its terms follow in the same order or sense as those of eta, but descending if in the contrary sense. A class of terms belonging to a series is said to have a limit x when and only when x immediately follows or precedes the class, but does not immediately follow or precede any one term of the class. A fundamental progression of a series eta has a limit x if x be in eta and immediately follows or precedes all of the terms in the progression. Again, a series is said to be perfect when and only when all of its fundamental progressions have limits and all of its limits are terms of fundamental progressions. These definitions premised, we are now prepared to define continuum. A series is said to be continuous if it is perfect and contains a series of type eta. It admits of proof that an ensemble that belongs to a perfect series is denumerable and has a term between every pair of terms of the containing series is of type eta. Hence we may say that series S is continuous if it is perfect and if it contains a denumerable class having a term between every two terms of S. A standard example of a continuum is the class of the real numbers equal to or greater than zero and equal to or less than one. This continuum is commonly represented by the class of points of a line segment of unit length, it being assumed that the series of such points in the mentioned series of real numbers are like. Multiple series and geometry. The remainder of this article, which aims at merely sketching modern thought on the foundations of mathematics, will be devoted to geometry. For many centuries, indeed down to the early part of the last century, the term geometry meant Euclidean geometry, and the propositions constituting it, the axioms and postulates together with the theorems deduced therefrom, were regarded not merely as a set of assumptions and deductions from them, thus constituting a coherent body of doctrine suspended in the intellectual error, but as true statements about actual space. And so, geometry has often been said to be the science of space, where space was used to denote actual or sensuous space, and not, as in recent years, merely the ensemble of elements, whether existent or not, about which geometry discourses. One of the Euclidean premises, however, namely the so-called parallel axiom, seemed to critical minds to be not sufficiently self-evident, and yet baffled all attempts, of which there is a vast literature and still increasing by occasional contributions of the ill-informed, to deduce it as a theorem from the other Euclidean axioms. At length appeared the geometries of Lobachevsky and Bollier, in which the axiom in question was denied. The fact that these geometries contradict the Euclidean at many points, for example regarding the sum of the angles of a triangle, and are at the same time both free from interior contradiction and from contradictability by experimental measurement or other experience, led first to the suspicion, and then, through the discovered possibility of manifold geometries, each consistent with itself but inconsistent with the others, to the conviction that the attempt to describe space results in an experimental science like physics or biology, that the so-called geometry thus arising is but a branch of what is commonly denominated applied mathematics, though there is, strictly speaking, no such thing as applied mathematics, and that geometry, regarded as a branch of mathematics, is to be regarded and justified not as a description of actual space, but, like every other branch of mathematics, as a hypothetical deductive system. A given geometry consists of certain assumptions A and certain theorems T deducible from A. The truth of the geometry resides in the implication of the theorems T by the assumptions A, and not in their practical usability in the business of the workaday world, not in any applications in the concrete facts of the universe. In recent years, numerous memoirs on the foundations of geometry have been produced by European and American mathematicians. A striking result of such many-sided investigation is that the subject matter of what is called geometry is multiple series, that is, series of two or more dimensions. These terms may be explained as follows. A series S sub 1 generated by an asymmetrical transitive relation R is said to be simple, no matter what the nature of the terms of S sub 1. Suppose now that each term of S sub 1 is itself a simple series or an asymmetric transitive relation, for the relation and not the terms is the essence of the series. 
the class of all the terms in all the fields of the terms of s sub one is said to be a series of two dimensions call it s sub two for an image the reader may think of s sub one as the series of the lines of a plane that are parallel to a given line each line term of s sub one is a simple series asymmetric relation of the points the plane s sub two is the field of all the points of all the lines of s sub one next suppose the terms of s sub two to be each of them an asymmetric transitive relation thus arises a three-dimensional series s sub three the fields of the fields of the fields of the terms of s sub one the process here indicated or its reverse will if continued lead to the concept of a series of n dimensions it is noteworthy that the ordinary complex numbers of the type x plus i y where x and y are real numbers and i is the square root of negative one constitute a double series and that the result of assigning y to the value zero is contrary to customary speech not a real number projective geometry the study of such multiple series or of the relations generating them has yielded three grand types of geometry projective descriptive and metric these agree in the fact that they are concerned with multiple series of what are called points but the terms of the series might as well be called roints, slithy toves, waves, or any other names, for, as will be seen, point is to be merely the name of a class concept, no matter what, whose individuals satisfy certain relations prescribed by the hypotheses or assumptions or postulates or so-called axioms, all the terms are in use, that are chosen for undemonstrated propositions of whatever geometry is being built up. In what respects the three grand divisions differ fundamentally will appear in the sequel. For each of the varieties in question, there have been found various systems of basal hypotheses, so that an undemonstrated proposition of one system may be a theorem, a proposition demonstrated on the basis of another system serving for a basis of the same geometry. The following system of basal assumptions for projective geometry is due to Pieri. I principi della geometria di posizione composite in sistema logico deductivo. Memorie degli arri accad degli scienze di Torino. Second series, volume 48, 1898. An analysis of the system is found in Russell's Principles of Mathematics and also in Courant's Le Principe de Mathematiques. The basis upon which Pieri erects the beautiful edifice of projective geometry consists of the following assumed, undemonstrated propositions. 1. Points form a class. 2. There is at least one point. 3. If A is a point, there exists a point other than A. 4. If A and B are two different points, the straight line AB is a class. 5. Each term of this class is a point. 6. If A and B are two different points, the straight line AB is contained in a straight line BA. 7. If A and B are different points, A belongs to the straight line AB. 8. If A and B are distinct points, the straight line AB contains at least one point distinct from A and from B. 9. If A and B are distinct points, and if C, a point of the straight line AB, is distinct from A, then B is a point of the straight line AC. 10. Under the hypothesis of 9, the straight line AC is contained in the straight line AB. 11. If A and B are distinct points, there exists at least one point not belonging to the straight line AB. 12. If A, B, and C are three non-collinear points, and if A' is a point of BC other than B and C, and B' a point of AC other than A and C, then the straight lines A, A' and B, B' have a point in common. 13. If A, B, and C are three non-collinear points, there exists at least one point that does not belong to the plane ABC. 14. If A, B, C are collinear points, their fourth harmonic does not coincide with C. 15. If A, B, C are three distinct points of a straight line, then if D, a point in the line, be distinct from A and from C, and it does not belong to the segment A, B, C, it belongs to the segment B, C, A. 16. If A, B, C are three distinct collinear points, then if the point D belongs to both the segments B, C, A and C, A, B, it cannot belong to the segment A, B, C. 17. If A, B, C are distinct collinear points, and if D belongs to the segment A, B, C and E to the segment A, D, C, then the point E belongs to the segment A, B, C. 18. 
If the segment ABC is divided into parts capital X and capital Y, such that each of them contains at least one point, and that every point small x of capital X precedes every point small y of capital Y in the order ABC, there exists at least one point Z of the segment ABC, such that every point of ABC that precedes it belongs to capital X, and every point of ABC that succeeds it belongs to capital Y. Some of these propositions plainly presuppose certain definitions. These are now to be given, along with some commentaries designed to indicate the spirit and course of the author's thought. Certain diagrams, which the reader may readily construct, though they are not essential, will serve to make clear. Such propositions as 2 and 3 show that no more points are to be assumed than are indispensable. The existence of others is to be proved. Thus, in the matter of fundamental assumptions, William of Ockham's famous dictum is regulative. Encia non sunt multiplicanda praeter necessitatum. The meaning of 4 and 5 is that two points, A and B, determine a class of points, named straight line and denoted by AB, whereby determine is meant that, given any pair of points, there is a certain definite relation R that holds between the pair and a corresponding unique class of points. The offices of A and B being indistinguishable, it follows from 7 that B too belongs to AB. From 10 it readily follows that a straight line is completely determined by any two of its points. Number 11, with preceding postulates, implies the existence of at least several straight lines. Number 12, which is not valid in either the Euclidean or the Lobachevskian, called by Klein hyperbolic geometry, leads to the conception of the projective plane. The class of points on the straight lines containing A, and each of them a point of BC, is named plane and denoted by ABC. It is then proved that the planes ABC, ACB, BAC, BCA, CAB, and CBA are one and the same. Also that a plane is determined by any three of its non-collinear points, once it follows that a plane containing two points of a straight line contains the entire line. The term fourth harmonic of 14 is defined as follows. The fourth harmonic of three collinear points A, B, C, or, as it is often called, the harmonic conjugate of C with respect to A and B, is a point X of A, B, such that there exist two distinct points U and V collinear with C, but not on A, B, and such that X is collinear with the intersections of A, U with B, V, and A, V with B, U. The point X is constructed by means of a figure, indicated in the foregoing definition, known as the von Stott quadrilateral. It is noteworthy that the definition implies neither the existence nor the unicity of X. The former is readily demonstrable by means of the first twelve postulates, but the latter requires thirteen, for the unicity depends upon the theorem of homologous triangles found in every book of projective geometry, and it is a most notable fact that this plane theorem does not admit of proof except by the help of points outside the plane, a most suggestive fact. What is true in a given domain of experience may, nevertheless, not be provable within that domain. End of 17